0: Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vine Pears Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Widely considered a cinematic masterpiece, Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather celebrated its 50th anniversary in 2022. The milestone was marked with a limited rerun in cinemas, as well as a souped-up 4K Blu-ray re-release. Paramount, the studio that produced and distributed the film, also treated fans to a dedicated miniseries on how The Godfather got made, and in many instances, almost never happened. Called the offer, and based upon producer Al Ruddy's account of the film's chaotic production, the series delivered one juicy little nugget for cocktail fans to savor. During a scene in a dark Italian restaurant, the character playing Marlon Brando bellies up to the bar and inquires whether they have Disarono. When the bartender nods, Brando requests equal parts Disarono and scotch on ice. The bartender hands him the drink and asks, what do you call that? Those well versed in disco era drinks will know the answer to that question, and for those who do not, it should be pretty obvious from the title of this week's episode and the intro up to this point. Now, we don't actually know whether Brando did enjoy this mix of amaretto liqueur and Scottish water of life, as has been claimed over the years, nor is there any indication of who came up with the name. But just over a year on from that depiction, it was like a good time to revisit the Godfather, the drink, and pick apart how we can give it a 21st century upgrade and why it's worth investing the time to do so. Joining us for this discussion is John Ware a New Jersey native who spent more than a decade mixing fine drinks on both coasts and now works as the bar director at Forsythia, an Italian restaurant in New York. The fictional Brando's answer to the bartender's question, by the way, was a delivery system. And I like to think that's what we got going on here. Although rather than alcohol, we're sending a potent stream of high caliber drinks information your way, listener. It's the Cocktail College podcast, and it's brought to you, as always, by the Vinepair Podcast Network. Luca Brazzi sleeps with the fishes as John Ware joins us in the Cocktail College studio today. John, did you bring the gun or the cannoli today? <laughs> Both, naturally. <laughs> Both, of course. Why choose? Why choose? Exactly. But no, John, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's our pleasure, and of course, the drink we're going to cover for those who haven't somehow seen a television set since 1972 is the Godfather. Interesting choice of drink here. Uh, tell tell us tell us some of the thought behind that. It's a, it's a drink that you enjoy. It's a drink that you serve over there for Cynthia.
1: Yes, absolutely. I I have this sort of uh, fascination um, with kind of bringing back some kind of the some of the retro cocktails. Do you remember the bar Golden Cadillac? It no. was on. So it was in the space that is now occupied by amazing cocktail and uh, Mexican spirit bar, um, Super Bueno. Very
0: nice. On
1: first and first. Uh, but they, it was all very retro. The, the Golden Cadillac is, uh, is a drink with Galeano, uh, which is an ingredient that is sometimes forgotten now, but just mm. generally these kind of 70s, 60s, 70s kind of disco, I guess not 60s, 70s uh, disco era drinks. Uh, are really cool to bring back and uh, turn to a little bit more of a cocktail context. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like we are, you know, this is before
0: we get into the drink, this is something that fascinates me. Do you feel like there has been something of a return of those kind of disco era drinks? Because we know disco itself as music never went away.
1: Yeah. That that, that, that goes without saying. (laughs) Disco never dies. (laughs) Definitely not. But the drinks. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that during the first probably fifteen years of the of this century, kind of in the in the heat of the cocktail revival period. Uh, they really first went back and said, hey, what were they making before Prohibition? And then during Prohibition and, you know, the the romance of the speakeasy and all that stuff. And like we've covered that at this point. we're kind of, you know, classic cocktail bars that are here to stay are are doing those drinks better than anybody else. The the riffs have been riffed. It's mm-hmm. riffed. <laughs> uh and so now I feel like we're kind of moving forward in time to find other periods uh in in cocktail history or uh just American cultural history that we can now kind of bring to a place of uh making making the cocktails again making them palatable for a modern uh drinker. Yeah, I th- I think that's a really interesting point too where it does strike me
0: as as natural that during the kind of cocktail revival the renaissance that we would turn our backs on these drinks that were pretty bad, right? And then go for the classics, go for pre-prohibition drinks, work on riffs, as you mentioned, and riffs on riffs. But then get to a point where we turn around and say, well, look, okay, and we haven't mentioned it yet, but, you know, The Godfather being a a whiskey and amaretto drink, right? Turning around and saying, what are the techniques that we've learned and developed during this more recent period that we can apply to drinks that are quote-unquote bad, and then make them good and, and bring them back in a in, in a in a better way. Exactly. Yeah. So it would seem that definitely, in your opinion, the Godfather is one of those drinks that's deserving of of, of being brought back and and enjoying uh, a second life.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, uh, not only for the nostalgic value and it It does the the naming of the drink, the etymology of the drink does refer directly to the movie it's It's not like <laughs> there isn't some deeper meaning or anything like that. <laughs> it's not something that was resurrected from eighteen ninety five you know it's that's what it's from uh-huh. uh, and so the nostalgia surrounding all that, yeah, just kind of having access to new ingredients now um is a is a really cool cool uh thing about being able to flesh out those drinks mm-hmm. It's funny
0: how many of those in this category that we're talking about seem to include Amaretto. Uh you know, we had um Jeffrey Morgenthaler on before for his uh Amaretto Sour, which is the you know, best and, yeah, the, only, the only Amaretto Sour. That's the that's the way you gotta make it, right? Um but yeah then The Godfather too as well. You know, like not The Godfather too is in the wildly successful <laughs> sequel <laughs> as The Godfather as well. Uh, we're looking at amaretto again. What is it about that ingredient? And, you you know, we'll do a deep dive a little bit later, but what is it about that ingredient that bartenders seem to shy away from it so often? (laughs)
1: Uh, I honestly have to blame it personally on the... The Amaretto sour as a drink that is ordered by people in bars and I mean for me is a it's a natural segue to work with amaretto because it's an Italian restaurant for forsythia Yes, uh, but I have definitely been behind many bars where somebody orders an amaretto sour and you kind of know What kind of drinker that is? Uh, and that they're gonna be? pleased by one particular kind of thing um, and I mean there's nothing inherently obviously wrong with that. Everybody has their own taste, and there's, you know, far be it for anybody to, to say anything about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's, it's one of those drinks that just bartenders just don't like making. It's kind of like <laughs> the, when, when somebody would order like a Cosmo from, you know, Milk and Honey or Death & Co. in 2005, they were like, we're not making you that. <laughs> that's just, just period. Like we're we're gonna like let's try something else. Mm-hmm. Uh and so to me the Amaretto Sour in in its previous iterations uh definitely falls into that category. And I think that's why bartenders are like, oh, I don't even want to have amaretto behind the bar. Um but again, there are a lot of really great brands and honestly to me the the best brands are the kind of first two. Uh, which is Disserono and Lazzaroni. Mm-hmm. Lazzaroni is amazing. I mean, they both come out of the same kind of um, tradition uh, of using apricot kernel candy to to make their um, spirits. But um, yeah, the all of the kind of like cheaper brands kind of took over over the 80s and 90s. And then it became this thing that was like, oh, this is just syrup. Yeah,
0: its flavor profile definitely is one of those ingredients that, Drinkers who came of age during a certain period, probably, you know, maybe their folks, their parents or their grandparents had it around in the house. And it's it's pretty sweet and pretty easy to drink and pretty easy to drink too much of Yeah, at an early age <laughs> when you don't know better. And perhaps that's also played kind of a, a part in the fortunes of, of Amaretto's modern standing. Yeah. Going back to the the Godfather specifically though you mentioned you know the name comes directly from uh, that movie or as a reference to the movie.
1: What else do we know or believe to be true about the origins of this cocktail i I mean I know it has its its origins in the sort of like disco era uh, and i I definitely think you you mentioned the scene in the in the offer uh, where hes <laughs> he asked for this cocktail. And he starts the conversation with the bartender by saying, "Do you have DiSorono?" Yep. As, as like this is one of the building blocks. <laughs> if you, I know you have Scotch, and that kind of uh, very simple two-ingredient cocktail is like, you know, maybe you wouldn't go to a bar and, and order something very complicated, maybe especially at that time. But if you know the bartender has two ingredients and he has ice or she, uh, you know that that cocktail can be made, and it's and it's. Uh, the romance of the of the period and that like filmmaking kind of hollywood sort of aesthetic yeah it's uh, those category
0: of cocktails that you mentioned there right like the spirit and liqueur again very much of that era and very much now Probably much maligned. We were just doing a tasting the other day. Don't ask why. Of stingers. <laughs>
1: oh, the, sti- the stinger is the the second one that I mentioned, and I also have a variation of that on my menu. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's one of those other yeah, great sort of like after dinnery kind of desserty, and because that's the other part of this is like I think of these drinks as like dessert cocktails, and yes. that category is kind of totally overlooked um and i mean i have the the good fortune of being at a restaurant where it's that fits into the meal but yeah. at, at a cocktail bar a godfather might look completely different
0: <laughs> it's it's interesting though as well that those kind of drinks have a certain reputation or don't really receive much love or attention and yet we're seeing or we have seen i would say over the past 10 years this kind of shots revival and movement right you talk about the ferrari the uh the m&m's another one that's yes, massive the 50 50 the 50 yeah. 50 two ingredient right shots that are more often than not right like a, a a spirit and then a liqueur or something of a lower abv kind of like an amaro or whatever so why is it cool to drink those but not cool to just add
1: ice and stir or shake and then Serve as a cocktail. Hey, that's a good question. Preaching to the choir. I uh I mean, I, I definitely remember that period. And and again, Forsythia would be exactly the type of setting where I would expect to be to to have that culture of like those little fifty fifty shots. Um, but I guess recently I've just been more interested personally in, in fleshing them out into cocktails and um I've definitely seen that in, in bars as well and just kind of like um getting more other ingredients involved and layering things a little bit. So it's not two ingredients now. It's like, you know, you have maybe two different types of scotch uh, or two different types of whiskey in the in the Godfather, say, and uh, some something else to to layer the flavor of the amaretto so it isn't so sugary sweet and, yep. you know, something for some nuttiness or a little bit of bitter. Mm-hmm.
0: I love uh, the idea of how you can make this cocktail more complex. I'm really looking forward for us to get into that. Before we do, though, something you mentioned reminds me um, of, of an idea that has certainly been new to me since, you know, starting this show, but something I think about a lot more when looking at cocktail specs, and that's the sweet component of a drink and why you might use a certain type of sugar versus just standard simple syrup, right? Where rather than just adjusting sweetness, you're also introducing a new complementary flavor. And it does seem like something like amaretto is a great way to do that and take it to another level, right? Like this this thing does have some nuance to it, Yeah, <laughs> I would yeah. say, and other flavors, right?
1: But you're using it as the sweetening component. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely uh, multiple different ways to go about this. And when you think of something like a daiquiri, um, the classic, clean white rum, sugar and lime, uh, you're kind of like you're you're o- in in those in that family of drinks. You're always balancing citrus with just plain sugar, right? Um, and I mean, you know, then you get into the category of daisies, where uh, the sweetener is a liqueur. I think uh, it's kind of you're adjusting the build size of the cocktail, uh, and you're adjusting the ABV. So if you <laughs> If you have something smaller, something like an old fashioned, where it's like two ounces of booze and then maybe a half ounce, a quarter ounce of a of a, of a liqueur as the sweetener, like that's cool. Um, but once you start getting into the the three quarter or one ounce range of your of your uh, like ABV heavy modifier, you're starting to get to something that's a little too too alcoholic. At the end of the day, yeah, for sure. I th- I think it's fascinating and and certainly
0: doesn't spring to mind or it, it's not something that is immediately recognizable that a margarita or or a sidecar could actually be boozier than a martini. <laughs> a
1: margarita is the booziest drink at mo- any any bar that uses Cointreau or or yeah. triple sec or something that has an abv as the as a sweetener there, booziest drink they serve. I firmly believe
0: <laughs> <laughs> probably no coincidence that it remains America's favorite cocktail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one other part of this that you know, we spoke about the 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 offer there in that scene of the actor um, who's playing Marlon Brando. Uh, there is a belief that maybe this drink was Marlon Brando's favorite, but no one—I don't think that he ever said that on the record, right? No,
1: nope. nope. I. It, they looked for it. <laughs> they have scoured the the like any quotations that he might have had, and they were never really able to confirm uh, that <laughs> that's actually true. <laughs> <laughs> So another aspect
0: there, another thing you mentioned that I want to, you know, dig deeper on just a little bit here, dessert cocktails. That's a great point that you're in a restaurant setting, so you can have those, um, in the quote unquote normal bar environment. Do you think that it comes down to how you're almost marketing the drink to your guests, right? Like people like sweet drinks, but people don't like to admit they like sweet drinks, um, So do you think you benefit from that by being able to say, hey, you should have this with your desserts? Or do you think you could put a drink that resembled this on a classic cocktail menu and just not tell people that it's sweeter and it would still be popular?
1: Mm, I thought about this quite a bit. Um, Generally, uh, I think that something like The Godfather or any cocktail that we would say is sweet uh, kind of has to be taken in context Um, and I think, yeah, so a lot of times people will say, oh, you know, that was so much food because our, our prefix menu is, is prodigious. It's like, Mm -hmm. especially in the summer, you you get two plates of pasta and you're like, I'm, I'm good. I do not need (laughs) a brioche pastry right now because that's, that's one of our main desserts. But a lot of times people will say, I would rather drink my dessert. And sometimes that's a glass of wine. Sometimes that's, uh, um, we have, you know, Vinsanto and other very classic Italian dessert wines, um, and sometimes I'm like, hey, check out that dessert cocktail section down there. And and that's when they'll be like, oh, Scotch and Amaretto and a cocktail. I'm like, yeah, I've never heard of a Godfather. But <laughs> listen, that's why I'm here. Uh and that's why we're all here. And so and when I was looking at the at the recipes in the in the article from Vine Bear from last year, uh, and seeing the the bitter ingredients, I said, Well, yeah, of course. And a cocktail bar. People, people need a little bit more balance because they're, they probably haven't had, they're probably going out to dinner later rather than coming from dinner. So they might not be ready for all that sugar. Um, but that's, it's also uh, something that I've kind of discovered in, in especially this experience of working in this restaurant is the very close interplay between pastry and cocktails. Uh, and these similar parts that they play in the restaurant as a whole, the similar parts that it plays these two components play in a meal, um, in that they're both sort of like extra calories, kind of. It's like this is this is the this is the icing on the cake of the of the savory part of the meal, uh, and so in that way they kind of um, uh, can be in the same sort of like flavor world. Um, but yeah, in a cocktail bar, like a crisp, nutty, bitter godfather would be super
0: awesome nice and you mentioned you know some folks might not be familiar with it uh how often does that occur that people come and see the godfather on your menu and or how do you feel about the fact that they might think that you've invented that drink and they're going like oh really they went for the godfather as the name could they have come up with something a little bit more <laughs> inventive here
1: <laughs> so i i i do this thing um on my menu where it's just there's the cocktails don't really have names. They're, they're just the, like I have the mezcal white Negroni and the chocolate bourbon stinger is another one. And like, I, I try to, I try to keep the, the name of the cocktail. And that to me, does two things. Um, one, it says, Hey, we're part of a larger cocktail context, uh, rather than like, like we're not doing anything really new. We're just kind of bringing these accepted recipes into our world. Um, and two, it, explains to the guest what they're looking at mm-hmm. In, instead of being like, oh, this is the, I don't know, Maiden Voyage or whatever, yeah. you know, the name. And they're like, I don't know what that is. Like what? And then they look at the description and they're like, I still don't know what it is. <laughs> what's, what's that? <laughs> um, and so this way kind of it, the, the name itself is an indication of what they're going to drink. Um, and <laughs> it does say Forsythia Godfather. So that hopefully that's a, 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 a cue for... This is our thing, our this is interpretation. Our, our interpretation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I got to ask you before we
0: move on the the chocolate bourbon stinger. Uh, are you are are you using a chocolate bourbon, or tell us about that real quick?
1: Yeah. So uh, the the idea came from uh, milk, mint chocolate ice cream, mm-hmm. uh, and just the 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 work of those flavors. And another component that I wanted to have in some uh, some of these dessert cocktails is bitterness. Uh, kind of playing off the the tradition of Italians drinking amaro, uh, and so I thought fernet uh, and chocolate could be a kind of Ooh. cool. Um, and the the original cognac in that context, I was afraid would get kind of bulldozed, um, and so bourbon became the the, the base spirit. Uh, but it is uh, basically chocolate in two ways, mint in two ways, and then bourbon. Uh, Fernet and a, uh, um, a menta menta version of Fernet, mm-hmm. Um chocolate bitters, and a, a really excellent creme de cacao. Oh, nice! Oh, nice! Um, I asked you that also
0: with you know with, with some kind of personal interest there too because something that I'm starting to see uh, is this trend of like ultra premium flavored whiskeys. I'm not sure if you've tried Crown uh, uh, yeah. Royal. Oh yeah. Yeah, they have a they have a whole line. Mm -hmm. They have a twenty three year old apple flavored whiskey at the moment, which I think retails for around two hundred (laughs) and (laughs) fifty dollars. Whoa. I can't say I've tried that. So and and you know, I've tried um, some chocolate flavored whiskeys too, so I was just curious there or whether that's something you've seen more like on the buying side. Have you seen like these these kind of like high end? flavored whiskeys or or, are those outliers just there
1: the the idea of them being high end is is new to me i have to say uh i mean i've i've definitely seen uh some of the trend of flavored whiskeys like from from the fireballs of the world Mm -hmm. to uh i actually really love the story of screwball yep but yeah the using a 23 year old base for that that's all right let's take it (laughs) into a new territory I love that. Well, we have a little bottle here, so maybe we'll share a little dram
0: after recording. But uh, I should bring us back to the godfather here. Um, I think we've covered all of the the normal stuff that we like to set up the episode with here. So, you know, we spoke about the history there. We've spoken about its standing in the modern kind of cocktail scene. And I love that idea of this being a really good candidate for a restaurant bar. So then something I normally like to ask after that is, what are you looking for from a perfectly executed version of this drink? Like, where does the profile land for you?
1: We've spoken a little bit about sweetness already. So, uh, sticking uh, strictly to the context of a dessert cocktail, uh, it is going to be a little bit on the sweeter side, and it should be because to me, this is something that either goes along with dessert and uh, amplifies the flavor, probably of the dessert that I'm that I'm eating. Uh, or it's going in place of dessert. So it, it needs to be – there needs to be like a palpable, sugary kind of uh, feeling to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, uh, some other flavors to kind of cut that a little bit. Um, one one thing that is uh, like an easy layup is um, some smoky scotch in there to have that peat note sort of like cut that sugar off a little bit. Um, a little bit of bitterness or nuttiness too. Um, some of those recipes that I was like, "Yep, spot on," uh, is they're using a nutty like amontillado sherry or something like that, fortified wines, and uh, yeah, or a little bit of bitterness, um, angostura bitters, something with uh, baking spice, uh, big cinnamon, clove, things like that uh, is a good way to kind of take that amaretto flavor and and turn it into something that's has has more of a backbone
0: hmm And you mentioned the word split base earlier. Got me excited here for us to do a dive into whiskey. Before we do, though, uh, I think it's worth noting, and yeah, we both mentioned Brad Thomas Parsons' article on this cocktail for vine pear. Um Just noting from there, I'm going to run through them because I'm not going to expect you to uh, remember all these riffs off the top <laughs> Appreciate of Appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> but... You know, and I think as Brad wrote there in the piece, you know, um, and I'm going to quote here, unlike the movie, The Godfather spawned its own extended family of sequels, including Count Um, The Godmother, The Goddaughter, The Godson, The Godchild, and The Brooklyn Godfather, which there seems to be a variation on either switching up the spirit, um, the whiskey for vodka, and or introducing cream. Um, John, (laughs) <laughs> have you ever had any of those drinks ordered or have you made them for yourself just to try?
1: Honestly, before doing a little quick research before this, uh, I the only one I had even heard of was the Godmother. Um, there there was another one that's listed some places, uh, the French Connection, which just substitutes the scotch for brandy. Mm-hmm. Um, I had heard of that also, um, but uh, I had never served a Godmother before and and the the cream aspect is is new to me although it does <laughs> that definitely tracks completely with the sort of like 70s disco era golden cadillac era yep. drinks definitely yeah so i'm going to
0: say those ones are definitely in that category and then we do have some others that you know would be you know like more of the kind of modern classic uh, candidates, The Godfather 2, created by, I'm going to check my notes here, Tyler Caffell at Fort Defiance in Red Hook, uh, and then The Godfather Number 2, which seems like a kind of a Corpse Reviver kind of thing, or mm. Tuxedo kind of riff in the name there, um, and that would be at Tosca Cafe in San Francisco. So interesting that other people are are, are doing that as well and kind of taking their own spin on it. Uh, you did mention as well, The French Connection. Just want to say another great movie there, right? Oh, 100%. You know, yeah. Um, so, yeah, tell us about your interpretation of this drink, though, John, beginning with whiskey. Let's do the ingredients
1: section now. What are you looking for? No, tell me all about it. Tell okay. me all about whiskey. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that's that's one of the things that, uh, that like, at the time, uh, if there was scotch in a bar, you know, it was blended scotch. Um, it could have been Johnny Walker or it's Chivas Regal or it's something like that. Um, and since then, the Scotch world has exploded uh, with a million single malts. Um, I've found an article, I think actually that you wrote, uh, about <laughs> single malt Scotch. Uh, and there were only 27 single malt, malt Scotches on the U.S. market in 1980. That is, yes, I, I do recall this one, yeah. Yeah, and so now, obviously, that number is over 10 times that. Um Maybe, maybe not. Uh, I would say, yeah. Probably over 10 times that.
0: Well, definitely 10 times if we're saying single malt, but maybe not exclusively from Scotland, then definitely yes. for sure. Let's go over that one.
1: Yeah. Um, and so anyway, uh, now there are all these possibilities that bartenders in 1972 did not have uh, to layer different types of scotch. So honestly, where where I got the idea to, to dive into this uh, was I was shown an amazing Italian single malt Whiskey called Puni Alba. Uh, it was, I mean, is it's it is discontinued, and I'll tell you why in a second. But it is malted barley and wheat. I don't remember the exact mash bill, but it's a few different things. It's made in Alto Adige. It's literally a stone's throw from uh, Switzerland or Austria or whatever's up there. Um, I want to say, want to say Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they mature the whiskey for three years in marsala casks. Uh, so it gets this kind of nuttiness, but then uh, they finish it for a few months in peated Scotch whiskey casks. So it has a serious smoke to it. Um, it's very sort of like bracing and uh, it's got some salinity and it's like it's a really excellent pour. Uh, the Scotch Whiskey Association, however, did not uh, think that they should continue. Um, they basically said, well, first of all, You're using Scotch whiskey casks, which is obviously evocative of Scotch whiskey. Uh, But the second part was that uh, the name of the bottling was Alba, which means sunrise in Italian. Mm -hmm. But it also happens to be the Gaelic word for Scotland. Uh. So they were like, sorry, buddy, this is Scotch (laughs) and you're done. (laughs) Um, So that's kind of a bummer. I do have a couple of bottles left. Uh, I think there are some, some more out there. Um, but when I tasted that, I said, this has to be for multiple reasons, being an Italian restaurant, uh, this has to be a component in a Godfather because wow. it it'll take it'll take that sort of like too sweet, you know, no backbone kind of uh perception that people might have of that drink, uh, and turn it on its head and kind of put a, a cutting flavor note in there uh that's gonna cut through that sweetness. Nice. Nice. And
0: before we move on uh, slightly from from that particular uh, whiskey and Italy in general, which I think is, you know, nice and apt for this episode, I want to say that in that single malt article, you're talking about the kind of the origins of single malt. I can't remember exactly, but I do think that World War II and American soldiers serving in Italy and drinking scotch, and I think single malt, but I might be making that up, but that largely help the fortunes of scotch whiskey abroad so hey scotland you might not like this producer doing this thing but <laughs> i mean italy's done a lot for your country when it, and, and sales of scotch whiskey so you know i don't know let them have it <laughs> don't be yeah. afraid of the competition i don't know yeah so how will that then impact or that being discontinued or so is that what you use in your version of it or did that kind of inspire you as you said to to, to kind of take that approach
1: I was using it I'm I have a couple of bottles left now and I'm trying to reserve them for uh, for just <laughs> people just drinking them because it's really delicious stuff uh, but so I've now switched to uh, a different um, peated uh, blended scotch mm-hmm. um, Isla mist nice uh, good stuff um, workhorse product really excellent um, does in many respects the same thing. It doesn't quite have the the depth of the puni, but um, still great nice
0: And so because I had this 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 part of the drink just noted down is whiskey because I have seen out there some folks maybe turning to other styles of whiskey uh, feel like maybe bourbon might be a bit sweet or rye. I don't know how the spice works with the amaretto. What are your thoughts on using other styles of whiskeys in this?
1: Honestly, I, I did not explore it. Uh, I have definitely heard of it. Um, I know that uh, a number of prominent cocktail bars prefer bourbon um, and sometimes we'll add uh, Angostura bitters as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely think it's a, it's a worthwhile path. And, and again, there's, there's because this drink is in this category of drinks that are stereotypically sweet, um, taking it into a cocktail bar context especially is you're changing the game completely it's it's not it, it maybe isn't something that you would want to have as desserty. it might be something that somebody sits down and and lingers over before they've eaten a meal um it's just a, a totally different uh different game and i think every every base spirit has its sort of secondary modifiers to the amaretto uh that will work mm-hmm. uh and there's there's a million interpretations out there and that's the way it should be. When you look at scotch
0: as a category of cocktails or the you know the, the cocktails made with scotch there aren't that many classics out there and you could argue whether or not people think the godfather is a classic or even, you know a, <laughs> yeah. a, a modern one right um how much do you think that comes down to just the way we have always perceived that style of whiskey and and how we're supposed to drink it and how much does that also come down to the fact that more often than not, you're not going higher than forty three percent ABV, and when you start to think of that from a cocktail point of view, like does that hold up, or does that feel a little bit reserved for um, mixed drinks?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, that's those are those are all excellent points. Yeah, i I definitely think that uh, it was a game of economics and availability. Uh, For a lot of the sort of like latter half of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, where um, it was what bartenders had access to. Um, A a notable uh, example of this is the Sazerac, uh, originally made with brandy, but then the phylloxera uh, issue in Europe destroyed wine and brandy production, uh, which is why they then turned to the sort of locally made, maybe a little more rustic at the time, um, rye whiskey. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, so... it was sort of like who what spirit was in the right place at the right time um and i think scotch whiskey wasn't terribly available and then by the time it was uh it was treated as this premium product that oh you you put you put water in my scotch what are you doing <laughs> get out from behind the bar
0: <laughs> it's crazy isn't it and people just don't realize that that you know the distillers themselves that's how they they drink it from an analytical point of view, anyway, right? Like maybe right. that's not how they're enjoying it. Who cares? Drink it how you want. And kind of as you were saying before, it's not on us to tell anyone. Um, I do think that's funny though. And then the blended scotch that you're going for there too. You know, that's just kind of, you know, why bring multiple base spirits into it if you have this one base spirit, right? That that has those components, the peat, everything. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, and so many variations to to play with so many different bottlings, so many different uh, flavors there. Yeah. I, I And I also was I was going to change so many other things about the cocktail. <laughs> I right. Like, I have to <laughs> yeah. I have to keep this classic in some way. Uh, so the 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 my sort of like excellent workhorse um, Spayburn uh, Spayside Scotch is the sort of the standby. Nice. Uh, and that's kind of the, the, the main part of the cocktail.
0: For your own personal taste, are you are you a peat head? Do you enjoy that flavor <laughs> yourself, or or are you more like yeah, space sides? Space sides, where I like to go in terms of like you know you might get a little bit of peat in there, but we're not talking like full on Isla kind of
1: thing. Yeah, I, I do I do prefer the the peaty uh, things. Although uh, when it gets to be, there is such a thing as too much peat for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I I tend to like scotches that are uh, that are peaty, um, but have a salinity. Um, and often kind of tempered by a lot of like warm wood, uh, sort of like like a balance in there is like a really uh, great achievement to me.
0: Nice. Well, next ingredient classically is, uh, of course, amaretto. Uh, you mentioned there you know, two brands up top. I do think it's interesting just to return to that scene from the offer again for a second, where rather than saying, do you have amaretto? He asked specifically, do you have disarono? That may or may not have been a product placement. We don't know. I feel like the brand, I think I read somewhere that the brand has never really uh, mentioned its associations to this cocktail or whatever, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. <laughs> um, you also mentioned another uh, brand there before that I'll be honest, I hadn't heard of. So tell us about the consideration for this drink when you're choosing which amaretto to use Uh it seems there's more out there.
1: Yeah. Uh one of somebody in one of these articles that I read uh in, in research for this uh said um Lazzaroni, there is no other Amaretto. And to an extent, I definitely agree. Um I, I haven't been using Lazzaroni, but I have been considering switching to it. Um mm-hmm. it is uh it is a um the the I mean to hear to hear the two sort of brands tell it, Di Sirono and Lazzaroni, they are the first. Uh, they uh, originated near each other, but not in the same place uh, and kind of created their traditions of making uh, Lazzaroni specifically from candy from apricot kernels um, and uh, Di Sirono, at least partially from the kernels themselves. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, looking looking at, I mean... I also think that DiSerrano was kind of synonymous with amaretto for a long time, mm-hmm. almost to a degree where you knew the brand name before you knew what it was. Yeah, uh, I definitely remember a period of, in my life that was like that. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and then I heard about amaretto sours and amaretto, and I had no conception that that was the same thing. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I also think it's telling in that moment and in, in, in the offer that he says you have DiSerrano. Yeah, uh, because that was probably the only one available. Yeah, I mean there there are quite a few other bottlings out there, uh, but it is a product that hasn't had the sort of artisanal resurgence. You mean hipsters in Brooklyn aren't making it right now? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> said, not yet. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean we. I, like I said, like a lot of the riffs have been riffed. Yep. You know, we can't be too far away from that. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I think that'd be really cool.
0: Mm-hmm. Nothing against people in Brooklyn making artisan no, spirits, all, by the of course. way. Of no, course, no, f- it's very fun. Um, yeah. But just, I think that is a good signifier of where a particular type of alcohol is in the cultural moment, right? <laughs> whether, yes. whether it's being replicated <laughs> there. Uh, oh, to be a category of one, the brand that owns a category, right? I mean, I think for the longest period, you know, Jameson, Irish whiskey, mm-hmm. uh, definitely not the case anymore, which is amazing because I love Irish whiskey, but you had to kind of just own that category, Campari kind of too, let's be yeah. honest. Yeah. Um, a lot of things actually there in, in, in Italy, Frenet Branca,
1: mm-hmm. Aperol,
0: yeah. another one. Yeah, that's, um, it's interesting. So beyond that, how are you looking to tweak this drink with either other ingredients? We'll get into the, the preparation in a second. But any other ingredients you bring into the fold here yourself? And can you tell us why you make those decisions?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the the next one in there was I wanted more nuts somehow. Uh, I played around with a walnut liqueur for a little bit, but that kind of it, it added nuts, but it also added extra sugar. And I, mm-hmm. didn't, I was like, yeah, that's not really the path. Uh, and, um, I'm sure you're familiar with Rice at Bauer and his amazing, uh, (laughs) Austrian Odevis, Mm -hmm. uh, and the hazelnut one, uh, was, was the answer there. Just a tiny, tiny bit. Uh, it adds this, uh, this extra like pop of, of nutty flavor. Um, again, a lot of these other ingredients that I have in there are employed at like tiny amounts, (laughs) uh, just, just to kind of like slightly amplified different parts of the flavor as it exists. Um, Marsala was another one. I was using a a dry Marsala in there, Um, kind of the same uh, idea as using an Amontillado sherry, say, uh, to add that nutty note and also to be a secondary piece of the flavor in the whiskey uh, because it it is partially aged in Marsala casks. Uh, And then a little bit of honey and a dash of saline also to... Uh, the idea of like salted caramel and kind of like somehow, nice. sometimes in a dessert, salt is actually the thing that will amplify the flavor. Mm-hmm.
0: There's there's nothing like that realization. Um, when I used to work in kitchens that, you know, actually a little bit of salt will always enhance desserts. Then sometimes you can, unfortunately, get an overzealous uh, pastry chef and the <laughs> salted caramel <laughs> ice cream actually just tastes like salt. And <laughs> having accidentally made a batch of one of those in my past, let me tell you that's not good and no one wants to <laughs> eat that. Um, on those Rizabar Eau de V for a second, though, uh, yeah, I love that idea of just adding a little bit, you know, using O de V to bring out different kind of flavor qualities in a drink. But also, I mean, who can afford to use more than just a de- Those are... Worth every
1: single cent, but those are pricey
0: products, right?
1: Very pricey. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but that—that's the—that's the great thing about them is that the little goes a long way. Mm-hmm. I was
0: at a bar once. I'm not going to mention which one, but um, a really great bar, and one I was sat there with the guy who runs it, and one of his younger bartenders was R and Ding a new drink, and he'd gone out and bought a bottle of their carrot eau de vie for the drink. It was a it was a carrot cocktail delicious drink but i think it employed like i want to say almost an ounce of it and the, and, and the guy sat next to me is going yeah this is never making it on the menu sorry pal <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> we're not putting a
1: 57 yeah, cocktail exactly. on the menu <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah nice try it's a it's a shame but yeah those those really are incredible ingredients um anything else you want to talk about on that front before we yeah before we start to look at the preparation
1: uh yeah no i, I think uh, i think we covered it
0: all right walk us through we're sat in forsythia. Um, we've ordered the Forsythia Godfather. We've just learned that this is a take on a classic drink. Um,
1: walk us through as if you're making that nap. So I hope you don't hate this. Uh, I, another thing that I have kind of come to, um, at working at Forsythia, which is a tiny bar with almost no storage behind it, uh, is that I've started to batch, basically all of my cocktails completely amazing uh when i came into the space i said whoa a lot of things have to change from the way i've worked in the past uh there's really no room for an ice machine so it was not really possible to do shaken cocktails uh so that led me to basically more or less eliminate citrus juice as something that i have uh i can i can make a margarita here and there Mm -hmm. uh but my my batches are are all sort of lined up on on my lowboy there. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some that are in the freezer, like the martini variation, things like that. Uh, and the Godfather lives in the fridge to be uh, at a at a nice serving temperature. And also, there's some slightly less stable ingredients in there than some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I uh, I take my beautiful uh, large <laughs> large rocks from Okamoto, uh, and I place one of them into uh, these nice uh, rocks glasses we have, uh, and then I. Pour the cocktail in the bottle <laughs> um, I, am, I am Blessed uh, to be again working with An excellent pastry chef her name is Mac um, She's awesome uh, Her maritozzo is uh, an Amazing like very Very Roman uh, brioche Pastry filled with uh, Chantilly pastry cream topped with powdered sugar oh. um, And she makes uh, Her house made uh Which is an almond biscotti Ooh. And so that's our garnish for this cocktail um sorry if I'm jumping the gun on garnishes no. <laughs> but it goes goes on the on a plate on the side. Uh yeah and uh and that's it. Nice and simple. Amazing. You mentioned batching
0: there and it, it it's funny because we uh had a recent article by um one of our writers Hannah Stubb, who works on staff uh who Put me on to your godfather, actually, <laughs> funnily enough. That's that, that's a nice little connection there. Um But yeah, just talking about, you know, batching cocktails in, in the era of $20 martinis, and then our, our sister podcast, the Vine Pair podcast, the flagship of the network, they were having this conversation recently, too. Because you mentioned, you know, you might not like this, but I I really, um, the kind of person who's like, this is horses for courses, right? Like, what does your bar allow, right? Mm-hmm. And... Also, what are you trying to achieve, right? You can talk about like batching completely or batching partially or, you know, the service that it allows you. But yeah, you know, like this industry is really driven by the resources you have. And part of that major resource is is space and what you're able to do, right? Like, would you rather serve amazing drinks that are batched or would you rather serve a very, very limited selection of drinks that are made fresh. Like, what's the difference? What do I care? As mm-hmm. long as it's a great drink.
1: Yeah, and I, I definitely think again, it's always about context when it comes to conversations like this. Uh, to be fair, I haven't worked in a in a cocktail specialist bar for over four years, uh, and I don't I don't know what the feelings are really in those spaces. Uh, to me, uh, in a restaurant context now, uh, speed and and getting that drink in that hand is Always better, yeah. Uh, because then you know, it, I, I actually did have a conversation <laughs> with a guy at the bar um, who who mentioned a, a, another restaurant that batches their drinks, and he and uh, he said, "But you can request a fresh version there." Can you make me a fresh one? And I said, "Of course." And we tasted them side by side, and I, I, it was a, it was a Negroni was the drink in question. I have to admit the the gin in the fresh version was a little sharper. Uh-huh. The cocktail sweetens very lightly over very, very lightly over time, maybe imperceptibly, imperceptibly. But so I think with batching, uh, as long as you have a commitment to tasting your your batches and making sure that nothing has changed because some if you do if you do a batch with an infusion, that's a little unpredictable. Yep. For the for the cocktail batchers out there. Watch out for <laughs> that. Uh I did a dried cranberry infusion on a gin that tasted like garbage like a couple months later because mm-hmm. it just doesn't keep the same way. But yeah, batching can be a lifesaver for you as, as somebody who's making cocktails and trying to get them to people quickly. Um and I I think especially in restaurants uh, it's a little bit more about food, and mm-hmm. that's that's the way it should be. And uh, I'm so happy when I can get a drink to somebody in 30 seconds uh, yeah. instead of a minute or two minutes. Yeah,
0: it's it's incredible, really. And um, you know, another aspect of this that that often gets forgotten is just the sustainability of not using a shit ton of ice metric uh every day and and you know the amount of water that gets lost there where you can perfectly hone in the dilution yourself or maybe not if it's maybe something you're going to serve over a rock and perhaps doesn't need it as much um yeah like that is undeniably a very good aspect of batch cocktails
1: yeah i mean it 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 has to be said that this this being a component of the luxury economy, waste is inevitable. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to do it with no waste. Uh, but having little to no citrus juice and no ice machine uh, and not doing a ton of shaking means that yeah, I'm not throwing away tons of potable water. Um, obviously, there still is some. It's not it's not going to be zero, um, but uh, it's it feels a little better uh, to work that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean. It, at the end of the day, you as uh, as somebody making creative decisions in a space, you are sort of you're beholden to your clientele. If if you're constantly getting complaints that it looks like you're not doing anything or it looks like things aren't fresh, you have to out to that to to a certain degree and be like, okay, cool, mm-hmm. we'll prioritize that a little bit more because you're the reason that we're here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's just important to to recognize how people are receiving. Uh, what you're doing and and get feedback and yeah I mean for the most part uh, the the feedback on batching where I'm at now has been very positive and I'm just gonna keep rolling with that mm-hmm. and so if, if if I were to be that guest sat at your bar and saying all right I want the
0: fresh version of this drink now <laughs> are you
1: happy to share the uh, the spec with us and the how you would prepare that of course of course uh, so it's gonna be uh, just a few drops of saline four drops uh, of a five to one saline solution uh, and then we have a Teaspoon of the uh, rice at Bauer Odevee, a lot of ingredients. Let's see if I remember them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a half teaspoon of honey syrup, two to one. A quarter ounce of uh, ostinato secco uh, dry marsala. Uh, then we have, uh, there's uh, two thirds of an ounce of amaretto. Uh, oh, a quarter ounce, yes, of the smoky whiskey, uh, the uh, puni alba malt. Uh, and then an ounce and a quarter of uh of my workhorse backbone scotch burn here's another thing if you had
0: that on the menu, bartender's gonna hate you <laughs> right how many i've lost count of how many bottle pickups that is, but yeah. also a two third you know switching between thirds of ounces and quarters and halves right like that's yeah. that's that's uh that's just not a feasible. Drink to have on a menu, one hundred percent, and
1: that and that's definitely another reason that I find batching so useful. Is that uh, if I if I once you scale things up, those sort of very minute measurements become a little less important, mm-hmm. uh, and you can. It's more about kind of making your larger product and tasting it. And if it tastes good, then you've achieved it, and you don't need to worry about like, oh, I need to add twelve more milliliters of whatever. Because uh, it's, if it's there, it's there. Mm-hmm. When you're batching, do you do by weight or by volume? Uh, I do by volume. Uh, I, I, Anytime I I put a cocktail on the menu, uh, I usually dial in the precise spec for a single cocktail because with the idea that, you know, if my back's really up against the wall and I have to make one a la minute, I always know how. Mm-hmm. Um, and then taking that spec and turning it into something that is... Uh, going to be the equivalent of usually in the high 20s servings. Um, I found that's kind of the sweet spot for, for my space in terms of how many drinks we serve. Yeah. Uh, and how, how long I'm comfortable having Batch sitting around. Again, I, I have kept Negroni Batch for five or six months at one time in the walk-in, and I believe there was really not a perceptible change. Nice. Uh, so it's possible, but I'd, I'd rather <laughs> not do that. <laughs> I'd rather kind of make it, move it out the door uh quickly as I can. So yeah, uh, just just kind of like writing out those recipes very precisely uh, and then just being able to batch them all at once. Mm-hmm. Here's one for
0: you, or the, the inner scientist in you. Does one fluid ounce of water weigh the same
1: as one fluid ounce of amaretto? That's a good question. I can't say I have done the comparison. <laughs> My gut instinct would be probably not. Right? It feels like the amaretto should weigh more. Yeah. uh, So (laughs) the the only time I've ever thought of this is in the discussion of the drink the Pousse Café. Uh, okay, I think yeah. I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah, um, but the the one where it's like in this little slender, curvy little glass, uh, and you layer ingredients on top of each other, um, and the the density of those ingredients matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm never been I have never been a science person, <laughs> <laughs> so the relationship of uh, density to weight is maybe not clear to me. But uh, something like like maraschino liqueur would be laying on top of something like Campari, say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I think that amaretto would be heavier. <laughs> yeah, I wonder whether
0: bricks is what we should be thinking about here, right? You know, yes. like dissolved sugars. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Or maybe it is just the same. Or maybe... it matters so little that who cares i don't know
1: (laughs) (laughs) all questions are worth pondering
0: (laughs) all right and you mentioned the garnish before um and 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 also you know rocks glass large rock amazing uh what would be the classic garnish on this or was there one there i
1: i i don't feel like this is a drink uh that classically had a garnish Mm -hmm. um especially in that era um taking taking things to a like an empirical standpoint was difficult. And I mean, that's always difficult in cocktails across time. Uh, Something like a martini is maybe the best example of of that being done successfully. And even still, that's an either or, olives or a lemon twist. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I guess Manhattans are always a cherry, but not always, sometimes it's an orange peel. Um, But when I think of this cocktail, I don't think of it as being um, heavily uh, dependent on its aromatics. Um, or that any peel or other component like that would really enhance those things. It's more the, the weight of it and the and the sugary aspects and the the nuttiness. Um, yeah, classically, I don't know if it has a garnish. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't need it to have a garnish when I order it. Mm-hmm. If I just order it blind at a bar, which is a dangerous thing to do <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't expect it to come with one um, but I would say if you get into adding like vermouths or like, other ingredients that that do kind of edge into that aromatic world um, appeal could be something you would want to do mm-hmm. um, yeah always about just trying things out
0: nice all right then any final thoughts on the Godfather today before we move into our five weekly recurring questions
1: Yeah I mean I love that it's having a resurgence I I, want, I I'm excited to see more conversations about cocktails like this I mean the stinger is a great example. Uh, the Rusty Nail, uh, all those sort of like classic duo drinks and like taking the the liqueur aspects of them, which have been kind of pushed into the apocrypha of cocktail work mm-hmm. um, and being like, no, there are good versions of those. And also, I mean, Drambouille is a great example. It's an amazing ingredient. So cool. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of homes for it uh, in in the cocktail world, and I'm excited to see more conversations like this going on.
0: Love it. Yeah, Drambury. There's another one that needs the Brooklyn treatment. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, then let's do it. Let's head into our weekly questions, beginning with number one, as always, as is custom. Uh, John, what style or category of spirit typically, we're going to say figuratively here because, you know, um, based on earlier conversation, typically enjoys the uh, most real estate on your back bar?
1: Uh, So this is no contest, hands down Amaro. Uh, we have probably something around 50 bottles of Amaro. Uh, we have sort of a growing reserve shelf that includes some cool things that you can't get in the United States mm. uh, and some things that are just kind of like reserve bottlings, things like that. And that, that is like so far in the lead. The, the second category is Grappa with, I believe, nine bottles. Nice. No contest there.
0: <laughs> love myself some grappa as well though it's um i, I you know i had the fortune of once visiting basano del grappa and, oh you know, amazing. The, and, and seeing it being made and also i believe that to be the hardest drinking town i've ever been to in my life yeah they, they get right. lit there <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of fun um nice nice amaro which yeah of course makes sense you know based on where you are yeah question number two Which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal?
1: Got it. So I I have a a few for this. Um, In the alcoholic ingredient category, um, something that I see very often overlooked is Kogi Vermouth di Torino. Um, Carpano Antica is an amazing product, but I have found that it has entered the perception of bar people in general to kind of think that that's the only sweet vermouth. Um, And I think it's incredibly useful and even indispensable for certain applications. But Mm -hmm. um, in terms of just a wholesale, that's the only sweet vermouth you use. I don't know about that. Um, I think it tends to uh, steamroll uh, in Negroni uh, is a perfect example. Uh, And being the bar that makes more Negronis than anything else, uh, I definitely was thinking about that. Um, and so I just thought back, not that far to my, my days at, uh, at the Deer Irving Rain's Law Room family. Uh, my wonderful mentor, uh, Megan Dorman taught me that the Negroni is a Campari, um, Vermouth di Torino and Beefeater. And that is what I do to this day. And I don't know that I'll ever change. Um, but I think that's a, a really great overlooked ingredient. Mm-hmm. Um, something else that has unexpectedly served me really well is a non-alcoholic ingredient, uh, is a sort of like complex hibiscus tea. I started with only a wine license at this at this restaurant, uh, and I didn't have any infrastructure for making cocktails. So for a while, there was only one, and it was a spritz. Uh, it was like a vermouth spritz with uh, hibiscus tea. Um, and uh, the hibiscus tea started as something pretty simple, but then became this sort of like, multi-layer water infusion with, uh, dried citrus peel and some angelica root. And, um, what was the other thing? Uh, ginger, uh, and kind of like, um, all these things and something that has started to happen quite a bit, uh, is people will look at that non-alcoholic cause now I have it in a non-alcoholic spritz, um, on the menu, uh, and sort of presenting an alternative to like juice and syrup Focused non-alcoholic drinks. I think you know all the amazing spirits, non-alcoholic spirits that are out there these days are great. Um, but tea is a really cool way to to make flavor. Nice. Uh, and people have been asking a lot for uh, that, but with booze in it. So now it's become this like hibiscus, forsythia, cosmo kind of deal. Oh, nice. Uh, where we just use a little bit of that because it's a very concentrated tea. Um, but it's such a multi-purpose ingredient. It can make a non-alcoholic drink. It can make an alcoholic drink. It can be. Just like a little sipper, if you don't want uh, too much going on in, in your in your drinking life <laughs> in that time. Um, but yeah, it's hibiscus tea. Love uh, it. And then finally, a tool. I had to think about this one a lot, um, but I think just a product of being doing doing any job for a length of time uh, is you just become really particular about the way you work and your tools. Um, and one thing that I have grown to love is a Relatively short-bladed, serrated blade, plastic-handled paring knife. Love it. I've, I've just worked at so many places where <laughs> you're cutting fruit and somebody hands you uh, one of those, like, painted blade with the cover on it paring knife, and <laughs> you're, like, mashing the lines because yep. the blade hasn't been sharpened, and it's, like, it's hard to sharpen it, and, like, a serrated paring knife is the only thing I'll ever use for the rest of my life.
0: Mm-hmm. We call those over in the UK I'm not sure whether this is the official term but we call those tomato knives oh. and uh yeah I'm 100% on board with you you know that was the one thing working in kitchens in London, that was the thing that people were always asking each other for in the kitchen. Does anyone have a tomato knife? Because as soon as you buy one, someone would steal it and like they were a <laughs> hot property. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're, they're so good. They can be kind of dangerous too. You got you to you yep. have your wits about you when you're using it. But, oh, for sure. Um, yeah. yeah. And they, yeah, they just stay sharp. And you know, when they're not sharp, cool, throw it out, buy a new one, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, it's not but... like you're trying to, yeah. Yeah. Those, uh, those other pairing ones are, yeah, they're disaster <laughs> all right question number three for you here what's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry
1: I think uh, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission that kind of goes for a lot of different contexts <laughs> I think uh, but it's it's honestly that's kind of the 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 gateway to experience and in, in in my mind is like when you're younger you're like, don't want to offend or you don't want to do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. And, uh, I mean, not that you shouldn't think about what you say always or do, uh, but definitely in the moments where, you know, the, the situation of like trying to prepare a check to give to somebody that you're waiting for a manager's approval on a discount or something like that. And like, uh, those moments where you kind of, you're like, well, I'm just going to do this because this person is trying to walk out the door right now. Yeah, uh, and and that applies in in lots of different contexts. Is use what you know, uh, and if you have a degree of certainty about something, just execute it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the worst that'll happen is that you'll get chewed out later, and hopefully it's just for righteous reasons, and that's it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I I love that. I, I I really do um like this philosophy. You know, within reason, and yeah, you know, within within, exactly. within the right context or whatever, but. I think that's the kind of thing that can also spur experimentation and and help move things forward. I mean, look, if we want to link this to the Godfather movie. And if you read into the story behind how that got made and everything, you know, like, by all accounts, Francis Ford Coppola and and, uh, Paramount, the studio were just locked heads the whole time Mm -hmm. and the, the whole thing nearly collapsed so often. But, you know... FFC, for you know, Francis, he seems like a guy who definitely does have that philosophy, too, where it's like, you know what, I'm doing things my way, I'll ask for forgiveness later, and, you know, hopefully it'll all turn out well, and, yeah, the world's better for those kind of innovations and innovational thinking. Yep. um Yep. That's TED Talk over. <laughs> <laughs> question number four here. Uh, if you could only visit one last bar in your life, what
1: would it be? Oh, God, that's a hard question. Oh, man. Uh, you know, I've I've gotten really into bars that feel like old school New York. Yeah. Uh, and, and the, my favorite one, uh, that we keep going back to is Hudson Malone. Uh, it's up, uh, up on the East side of third Avenue between, Oh no, it's on 53rd street between third and, Whatever's next over there, yeah, one of the named uh, ones, right? yeah, one of. The, I think so, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's 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 this sort of um, kind of you know like like a like an Irish pub that isn't necessarily Irish meets like a steakhouse. Mm-hmm. The food is great. Uh, it feels very much like a bar that you can just sort of forget the time on a whole afternoon. Love it, and just kind of sit there with a beer, and the the bartenders are like so uh, so personable, so polite, so awesome uh um just kind of like the type of bar that you walk in and you get treated like you're an old regular even if it's your like first time there mm-hmm. um really great great place love it
0: i love that especially cuz so many of those bars and and this can be a charm to them too but so many of those style of bars you kind of have to earn politeness yeah. from the, the, the bartenders yeah. or the staff that have been there forever, right? It's <laughs> like they treat you they, they, they treat you suspiciously for your first couple of times then they're like, all right, you know, you're part of oh, this you're now. Okay. You know, but yeah. The <laughs> fact that they would act like that, I think that's great. You know, both both have their charms there. Uh John, question number five, final question today. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make?
1: Whew, man, that's another tough one. <clears throat> uh I'm I'm going to say a Manhattan variation with rye whiskey, non-negotiable. Uh and with some some kind of amaro in there, kind of I guess like a black Manhattan mm-hmm. kind of deal. Um the amaro is not as important. I would say better if it's on the more bitter end of the spectrum. I I guess if I were having my last cocktail, I must be in dire straits, so I would just say to the bartender <laughs> whatever you got, rye whiskey, <laughs> high proof. Mm-hmm. Something above a hundred proof, <laughs> uh, and some kind of bitter amaro. Make me a Manhattan, and then I'll uh, ride off into the sunset <laughs>
0: <laughs> with a nice buzz. <laughs> Love nice it, buzz. Uh, John. I actually lied. I have a I have a sixth, final bonus question for you here today. Uh um, Should Michael have killed Fredo?
1: Ooh, that is a uh, that is a good question. Glad this one comes at the end <laughs> uh, for. <laughs> Uh, in order to not interrupt the program, uh, but it's been a long time since I've seen The Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair <enough. laughs> uh, I mean, better to ask forgiveness than permission. Is and... of... <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, you know, Fredo certainly didn't seem to ever ask for either. Well, you, yeah, no, he, he yeah, forgiveness <laughs> definitely was his root, uh Didn't serve him well and reminds me, um, I'm going to butcher it, but but, but one of the funniest lines relating to drinking just that comes so unexpected is Fredo and Michael, Godfather 2. And he's like, what's the Spanish for uh, strawberry daiquiri? (laughs) Strawberry daiquiri. (laughs) Anyway, John, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot, Tim. This has been great. Cheers. Let's go drink some apple flavored whiskey.
1: (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay,
0: I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info. But here's the good news. Every single episode of Vine Pairs Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout-out to everyone on the Vinepair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Malin, editor-in-chief Joanna Sharino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally,